Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. As we consider and as you look back across history, any figure that you might pick, any sort of great historical figure is going to be a complicated figure. Uh, Nearly anybody who is put under the microscope of really looking at their lives, uh, no matter how heroic we find them, uh, we are always going to be able to find cracks and ways that they have faltered. You can think of any of the great men of history. You can think of uh, Churchill or Lincoln, Gandhi or Mandela. And if you look at their lives for long enough, you are always going to be able to find mistakes. Mistakes, sins, things that they did wrong, things that they weren't able uh, to do well. This is because all of us are living under the curse of sin. One example of this that's really clear is the example of Oliver Cromwell. Uh, Cromwell, if you don't know, uh, was a famous British guy, uh, and he was, for the first 40 years of his life, an unremarkable person. He went to school, he graduated from school, and he kind of just hung out. But when he was 40 years old, something happened, something changed, uh, which was the outbreak of one of the many English civil wars. Uh, And as this English civil war broke out, he became the leader of the army of parliament, and he defeated the army of the king. And that was what led to Charles I, king of England, uh, being dethroned and eventually beheaded. Uh, And all of a sudden, Oliver Cromwell uh, became a big deal because he was the leader of this army. Because for 10 years after this battle, there was no king or queen in England, and Cromwell ruled as Lord Protector. Now, that story sort of should strike us. It's wild for a number of reasons. First of all, um, us uh, Americans don't really have an idea that for 10 years in the middle of the 1600s, the British were like, you know what? Let's not do kings and queens. Let's just have a republic. Um, And so for 10 years, years before America existed, there was the Republic of England. Most of us don't know know that little historical factoid, but The other thing that makes that story kind of wild is they really called him Lord Protector. I mean, that sounds like if there was a Marvel movie about the 1600s, what you would call some 1600s superhero, the Lord Protector. But as you look at the life of Cromwell, his reputation is extremely complicated. He fought valiantly for the rights of common people in England. That was one of his big sort of arguments with the monarchy, with the king. But he also committed absolute atrocities on the island of Ireland. Many of the Irish remained loyal to the kings and queens of England. They didn't like this idea of a republic, mostly because they weren't going to be represented there. And so he was sent to tamp down this rebellion, and he did it by basically killing any Irish people he met. It is extremely complicated. It led one uh, British historian to say that Oliver Cromwell was a fine gentleman, except when he was in Ireland. And this is sort of the way that we live in. It's hard to think of ourselves in the broader scope of history. 
the things that are commonly agreed upon for all of us, all of the values that we have in society, in a hundred years, some of them are going to look ridiculous. I mean, just think about the fact that we are only uh, 60 years removed from the civil rights movement in America. And how many of the things that happened before that do we all kind of think were silly or wrong? Trying to situate and understand ourselves as it relates to history is a more difficult task than we think for one big reason. We all think that we are the good guy. We all think that we're the good guy in the story of this world. No one thinks they're the villain. No one thinks that they are, to borrow a phrase, on the wrong side of history. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, this is a struggle. How do you live your life in a way uh, that, and have the right sort of values so that history will smile on you? I, I'm not sure. But because even as Christians, this is a difficult question. And actually, as we begin our summer series, as we begin to look at the Psalms, Psalm 2 helps us answer this question. It points our hearts and our minds in the right direction. God is the sovereign ruler of history. And so wherever we find ourselves in that, we should orient our hearts towards him. Our struggle comes from the fact that we don't give enough thought to the ways that we have been captured and captivated by the values of society around us. Our values are naturally more formed by the world around us than by submitting to God. And so we have to be thoughtful. We have to carefully critique, according to the Bible, the values that we even find in our own hearts. And that's, that's what Psalm 2 is going to show us this morning. So if you are able, I would like to invite you to stand as I read God's Word. I'm going to read it, um, but the words will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along there. And so let's hear Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, your, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. 
This poem is called a royal psalm uh, because it was read as a part of the coronation ceremony for the kings of Israel. When they would gather together and do all the pomp and circumstance that we associate with coronation, part of all of that was that they would read this psalm for all of the kings in the line of David. And I mean, you could see why kings would like this psalm, can't you? I mean, it's got all the good stuff about breaking your enemies like pots and, you know, smashing them with rocks of iron. It's kind of a rousing song, but it's not just a rousing song that's like, rah, rah, let's go of England. There's something more going on here. It's a diagnostic tool to examine our hearts and align ourselves with God in the midst of history. The psalm breaks up into four sections, which if, you, if you're looking or reading along in your Bible, you can see those kind of breaks. And it's pretty convenient uh, because each one of them is three verses apiece. Each one of these sections or stanzas, if you like poetry words, um, each one of them is three verses long and the first three end with a quote. And so as we come, we're going to kind of look at each one of these stanzas and how this story builds, how this sort of coronation song builds. And so the first stanza looks at the kings and rulers of the nations around Israel. They rage and plot against Israel and her king. They take counsel and set their hearts against God and his chosen people. Now, it's easy when we sort of hear this language of plotting and setting their hearts against them for our minds to sort of see these kings as almost cartoon villains, uh, as, as if they're like uh, Snidely uh, Whiplash or Boris Badenov, um, which some of you know as the bad guys in Rocky and Bullwinkle. Um, but I know that that reference is lost on many, many of you who are younger, uh, who never had the joys of watching Rocky and Bullwinkle. And so for you, uh, this is a little bit more like uh, Wario and Waluigi. Uh, in both of these cases of, of Boris and, and uh, Snidely Whiplash or Wario and Waluigi, we have sort of the, the character of the mustache twirling bad guy, right? They usually have a, a funny laugh and they're, you know, everybody knows they're evil because they've got the mustache that they twirl. This is, it would be easy for us to read this passage and go, oh yeah, it's like, this is like a cartoon bad guy. This is not serious. This is not real. But we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook so quickly. We're told why these kings are plotting, why these kings are scheming against what God wants. It's the quote at the end of their stanza in verse three. They want to burst the bonds and cut away the cords that God has put on them. And I think that that's more like us than we might want to admit. Let me give you a couple ways. Have you ever felt that God's law and rules were burdensome? Yeah. Have you ever been frustrated when you read the Bible because you find God's ways to be too restrictive? Have you ever thought that God was maybe kind of, sort of, just a little bit of a killjoy? I have. And in those ways, I am just like these kings. Chafing against the law of God is what binds these kings in this stanza together. But this, this psalm shows us that all of this rage, all of this plotting is in vain. Our sin makes us irrational by its very nature. 
God has set the world in motion and made it for our good. And yet what our sin does is twist those good gifts of God, twist them into things that they should not be, twist them in our hearts into being more than they should be. So the blessing of food can become the sin of gluttony. The blessing of drink can become the sin of drunkenness. The blessing of sex can become the sin of adultery. We see that so many of these things that God has created good, that God has given to us, when we let loose of their bounds, they become harmful to us. And that's what these kings wanted. They wanted to break out of these boundaries. They didn't want to live under this rule. They wanted to cut these cords and cut these ties Again, sin makes us push and try to break free from all of the good boundaries that God places on our life. And not only that, it gathers a crowd to encourage us to do so. There's some sort of joke about being online there that I'm not going to make because at the end of the day, all of this accomplishes nothing, which is what leads into the second stanza. As these people are plotting and scheming, Against God's rule and God's reign, God sits in heaven and laughs. Look at verse 4. It says he holds them in derision. All of the political, social, economic power on the earth are nothing compared to the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. And sitting in the heavens can make us think of that God is, is high and distant and far away from us. But what the psalmist is communicating, what what the people who read this psalm and heard this psalm at the coronation of David would have heard is not that God is distant, not that he's sitting far away, but rather that his power is so radically different than anything else that we are used to in this life and in this world. Let that sink in for a minute. God's power is of such another variety that all of the political Social and economic power of the world around us mean nothing. That God laughs at the scheming and people trying to use this power. I mean, think about it. We know, we can see how much a political leader, especially the head of state, can change the direction of a nation. We know how those who control the ways that we communicate and connect can affect our lives, can influence our lives. We can see the power that somebody who has a billion dollars can exert over the world around us. But all of that power is nothing but a votive candle when compared to the raging forest fire of God's power, the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. And God can terrify even the most powerful people in this world with a single word from his mouth. And that what this psalm is doing then, it's inviting us to see with new eyes. This psalm is inviting us to a new way of seeing the world around us. Biden, Zuckerberg, Musk, all these people that we perceive to be so powerful are nothing. They're nothing when compared to the power of God. And so this psalm asks us to change our perspective. It wants us to see that the things that we can see are not as meaningful, not as significant as the things that we cannot see. That's the very nature of our faith. God's reign, 
hidden and invisible as it may seem to us now, is the real and true reality of our lives. Think about what that means. That means that the hidden reign of God, the hidden power of God that we can't always perceive with our senses is actually more important than all of the things that we can perceive with our senses. The hidden and invisible kingdom of God is more significant than all of the visible powers of this earth. And so this psalm is inviting us to live in that reality. If we live in that reality, our anxieties about what's going to happen in the future don't look as big because we know that the hidden power of God, the God who has worked throughout all time is still at work and he is still accomplishing his will on this earth. We stop trying to wield our own power to exert economic influence over others. Instead, we submit to God, the God who is enthroned in heaven and laughs at the plots of the most powerful men and women on earth. It's a call for us to live in the reality that what we can see with our eyes, all of the troubles that we can anticipate coming around the corner are nothing. And that the power of God, the way that God is at work is everything. And for the people of Israel, God gave them a visible symbol of this in the person of the king. It's God has set his king on Zion, which is the way that the Psalms often talk about the city of Jerusalem. And so as the stanza changes after this quote again, the scene changes as well. We saw uh, what, what God was seeing in the kings of the nation. We saw how God was powerful, sat over top of that and laughs. And now we see the coronation festival in Israel. We see the king responding to this knowledge of what is true about God. In fact, um, Though there's no heading, there's no little note in your Bible about who wrote this psalm, uh, most people think that it was actually David who wrote this psalm because the way it changes to I. There in verse 7, it says, I will tell of the decree. And as he tells of the decree, what he is telling is the covenant that God made with David. In 2 Samuel 7, he's explaining uh, to the people what God has promised to David and to his family. The kings of the line of David were God's emissaries to the people. They were God's visible representation to the nations around them, and they were given a special status. They were adopted as sons of God to show the reign and power of God to the people around them. Now, you've been around church for a while, if you grew up and maybe went to Sunday school as a kid, you might see a problem starting to brew. I start using the language that the sons of David were the specially adopted signs and symbols that God was giving to his people of God's rule and reign your brain might be starting to tick over. And if you're not, if this is your first time in church or you're just starting to ask questions, let me tell you why this might be uncomfortable. David and all of his sons in the line after them were not great. They were not great people. David famously sinned. His son Solomon was, was magnanimous in his sin. As you go through the Bible's list of the, the sons of David, the different kings of Israel, what you find again and again and again is they're not great. They're not even good. 
In fact, you would, you'd be hard-pressed to find more than a half dozen kings in the 500 years of the reign of David's family in Israel. It'd be hard to find six kings that God says were okay. Almost every one of them is bad. Almost every one of them, God says, went away from my plan, went, went away from what I wanted from them. The overwhelming witness of the Bible is that the line of David were not good people. And these, these goof-ups are the specially adopted sons of God. It doesn't add up. And as the people of Israel, over time, begin to reflect on this psalm, they started to realize that as well. When the people of Israel were taken in exile because of the sins of the line of David and the people, when they were taken into exile, they started to reflect on this psalm. They started to think, you know, maybe that psalm isn't about any of these kings that we've had so far. Maybe this psalm isn't really about the earthly kings of Israel at all. And it was in the period of the exile that the people began to see that this psalm was not ultimately pointing to the kings of Israel. It was pointing to something more. It shifted from being a royal psalm to being a psalm that pointed their hearts to the Messiah. And actually, they're absolutely correct in thinking that. If you look back at verse 2, it says, who does it say that the nations plot against? It says they plot against the Lord and his anointed one. Fun fact, very relevant to this. Do you know what the Hebrew word for anointed one is? It's Messiah. It's Messiah. Jesus was our Messiah. They begin to see this and realize that it's pointing ahead to another king. A king from the line of David, yes, but a king that was unlike any of the kings that had come before them. They begin to put their hope that this psalm was about the coming Messiah. That's why when we get to the New Testament, that this is the one, one of the most quoted psalms in the entirety of the New Testament. I mean, think about what, what is said by God about Jesus at his baptism. What's said? This is my son. What is said at the transfiguration of Jesus? This is my son. Listen to him. In fact, if you, if you read the Daily Prayer Project uh, readings, this week you would have read in Acts chapter 4 that Peter and John uh, were arrested and had to defend themselves in front of the council. And what psalm did they point to to say that this Jesus that we're preaching is real, this Jesus that we're preaching is the true Messiah? This psalm, Psalm 2. Again and again and again, the New Testament uses this psalm to show us that Jesus was the true Son of God. He was the real one. He is the one who receives the nations as his inheritance, not by conquering them with brute force, but as his gospel goes out and changes hearts from every language, nation, tribe, and tongue. He breaks the nation to pieces on the last day when he'll return and all will fall on their knees and confess him as Lord. But even more than that, there's something more beautiful that Jesus does related to this passage. And it's something that the Apostle John saw. The Apostle John was able to see how not only is Jesus the uniquely adopted Son of God, but because of our union with Christ, we are as well. 
John says, behold the manner of love that the Father has lavished onto us, that we should be called the sons of God, and we truly are. Beloved, the beauty of Jesus as Messiah is not only that he is the one true and good king. It's not only does he rule with a true and invisible power over all of this world. It's not only that he extends his love towards every nation across the earth, but it's that he lavishes his love on us by sharing his status with us. We are united to him. We are one with him. And we are adopted by the Father because of him. Beloved, this union to Jesus, this adoption by the Father is astounding. Because of Jesus, you and I are given the same status in the eyes of God as Jesus himself. If you've been around church, it's easy for those words to come in one ear and go out the other. But stop and think about that for a second. Think for a second of the week that you've had. And now think about this. The holy God of the universe, because of the work of Jesus, sees you today, if you're trusting in him, with the same exact status as Jesus. His holiness is your holiness. His perfect life covers over all of your perfect life. His death covers over the death that you and I deserve for our sins. Even when we chafe and push against his law and his reign in this world, he still brings us home. He still makes us a part of his family. We are secure. We don't have to live as orphans in this world, begging and earning our way around because Jesus has already accomplished it for us. And that's what allows us to see this last stanza of the passage. We can joyfully hear how the psalmist applies this to our heart. And on the one hand, if you haven't received this love of Jesus that he offers to us in faith, then we should take this as a warning. In this passage, Jesus is to- we're told that he might lash out and wrath against us. If we don't receive Jesus, this is a warning that the wrong side of history is ultimately not about our stance on this issue or that. Rather, Jesus is the arbiter and ruler of history. And where we stand with him is the question that really matters. And so it's a somber warning if we're not trusting in Jesus. But for those of us who are, this is hope. This passage holds out hope. It holds out hope, first of all, that the vain plotters can actually become family members if they submit to the love of Jesus. But for those of us who have submitted to the love of Jesus, we can serve the Lord. Growing out of the gratitude, the awe, and the amazingness that we find in what he has done for us, we can rejoice at all that he has done. And this psalm ends with a description and invitation to blessing. If we will see this world with the eyes that the psalmist is asking us to, if we can see this world where the invisible hand of God is more important than all of the social and economic and political power of the world around us, if we can see that, then we'll be blessed by taking refuge in him. We can live non-anxious lives 
because we know the real truth that God is in control, that he is sovereign over everything that happens. We can stop trying to prove ourselves with our actions and rest in what he has already done for us. We don't have anything left to earn with good moral behavior. Jesus has already done that on our behalf. And so let's take our refuge in him, church. Let's rest in him. Let's trust in him and live as his children, brought into his house and invited to his table. Let's pray.